The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles or on your app to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 12. Uh, Praise God. Philippians, if you're looking for it, it's between Ephesians and Colossians. That's going to be in the back third of your Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible of your own and you want one, we have them available for free. Uh, You can just ask an usher or anybody back in the back. Uh, There's a lounge across the hall, uh, and they'll be happy to get you one after service, okay? I think there's also Bibles in the back of the pews. Probably a different translation than I'll be using, but you can use one of those. Um, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app with you, we will have the scriptures on the screen so that you can follow along, or you can just listen as we read God's Word, uh, whatever works for you. Just want to make sure you have access uh, to follow along with us, okay? Uh, today we are continuing in our series. It's called Joy, and we're doing a journey through Philippians. We're going verse by verse through this powerful book of the Bible. This was written as a pastoral letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, Last week, we were encouraged that the unmatched goodness and mercy of God displayed most vibrantly in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ should be our motivation for humility and unity as his people. We saw that humility and unity in God's family leads to his glory and our joy. And so this week, we're going to continue in the same flow of thought, uh, and we're going to begin to explore how followers of Jesus can experience even greater joy as the effect of our lives lived for Christ reaches outside the family of God and pours forth into the world. Praise God. So we're going to read Philippians 2, and we're starting in verse 12. Hopefully you're there. Off we go. So then... My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Praise God for his word. Uh, We're going to start back at verses 12 and 13 and work through this together. Uh, The first thing we need to see in working through this is right back at verse 12, this word, therefore, okay? Uh, NASB says, so then. I think NIV says, therefore. Either way, the point is it's connected to the verses before it. We need to be careful to consider verses 12 and 13 in light of verses 6 through 11. Now, something that everyone may not know, which I think is, is really interesting, is that most scholars agree that verses 6 through 11, right before where we started, that uh, they're a hymn that was sung in the early church. Um, Now, this should be informative for God's people as we write songs intended for worship today. So let's read those verses, keep that in mind. But we're also doing this because it's it's pretty much impossible, without paying very close attention to the the context here, to understand what's being said in verses 12 and 13 correctly, okay? So we're going to quickly read verses 6 through 11. And remember... Uh, Most scholars think this was a hymn. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, he's talking about Jesus, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, One one other point on this being a hymn, as I was thinking through this, it reminded me of this. Um, There's a lot of times 
that Pastor Jordan, who is our worship pastor here at Love City, when he's looking for songs that we can all sing together uh, to worship our king, he'll send me lyrics and he'll ask me to help him judge whether or not they are clearly and faithfully representing Jesus and his gospel. I think it's important to say he's under no obligation to do that. Um, He's been entrusted completely with authority and stewardship over that area. Uh, But what it reflects is the fact that we have a really deeply held conviction here that every song we sing should point us towards the joy of our salvation and the glory of our Savior. And uh, I'm, I'm severely grateful for our entire worship team and their commitment to leading us in theologically accurate and gospel-centered worship. So I just thank you for anybody that takes part in that. Uh, sound, everybody. It, it, it takes more than most people realize uh, for us to have gospel-centered, um, Jesus-worshiping, uh, you know, praise uh, among us every week. And so also, if you're somebody that... Uh, really also loves Jesus and has musical talent, uh, we are always looking for more help with that. Uh, We want always to be cultivating and trying to find um, the gifts that God has placed among us for his glory and the good of his people. So if you're somebody that uh, could help in that way or it it excites you to think about uh, helping to lead our congregation in worship uh, so that Jesus can be glorified, then um, let Pastor Jordan know and uh, we'd like to talk to you about it. So praise God for that. Uh, so this, coming back to the way verse 12 starts, it says, so then, okay, so then. So we read 6 through 11, right? All, all of this, this beautiful language about the humility of Christ and coming, uh, the incarnation and him restricting his deity, coming to live as a man so that he could die in our place for our sins, right? The beauty of, of these simple gospel elements, right? So that's all pointed to, um, that's verses 6 through 11. So then he says, so then, my beloved, so all of what he's about to say is tied then to the beauty of what he just laid out, okay? The sheer magnitude of God's plan of redemption and the beautiful majesty of our Redeemer should inform the way we interpret and obey these verses, okay? So there is a lot of misinterpretation when it comes to verses 12 and 13, and so part of how we don't do that is to stick with the flow of thought and understanding that Right out of this, essentially, Paul, we believe, is quoting this beautiful, you know, first century hymn that uh, people sang to Jesus then, and it's all about him coming, dying in our place for our sins, the beauty of the gospel, and then the the fact that because Jesus obeyed God in that beautiful mission, he's been given a name that is above every other name, and that uh, at some point, whether they like it or not, every single knee is going to bow and declare the lordship of Christ, right? And so out of those thoughts... The glory of God's plan of redemption and the beauty of our Redeemer, we flow into verses 12 and 13. So, first thing we see here, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. The first thing we see is, because of all those things, we should operate in spirit-empowered integrity. Um, you guys know what a chameleon is, right? I don't expect you all to be reptile experts, but most of you know what a chameleon is, right? Um, it's, they got the googly eyes, right? They can like look all different directions and, and the long tongue, little weird alien looking feet. Um, that, so all that's true, but really what's cool about them is that they can manipulate the pigment of their skin so that they can blend in with their surroundings. Um, pretty, pretty magnificent, the uh, creative potential of God and what he's put into nature. Just it's almost like God was showing off at some points, like, here, just see what I can do, right? I think chameleons are part of that, um, and skies and stars and everything else. I'm not going to get weird. Um, so the, the Discovery Channel's never done a show on them, but there are also chameleon Christians. Maybe you've not heard about this, but, uh, and when I say that, I don't mean they have googly eyes, and you're super mean for even thinking that, and you should be ashamed, okay? So <laughs> let's repent for that and move on, all right? What I mean to do is that they, what I mean about saying that is that they tend to just blend into their surroundings, oftentimes changing their speech and actions based on who they are with. When we understand the gospel and that we have been and are being transformed into the image of the exalted Lord of glory described in verses 6 through 11, you guys remember that, the beautiful song being quoted about the goodness of God, the greatness of Christ, his exaltation over all things, because of all of that, it leaves no room uh, for us to act like a chameleon. It seems that Paul is not only confident that these Philippian Christians were living in obedience to God's word when he was there, but he 
he makes this, this comment that even more so when he wasn't there, looking over their shoulder, he trusted that they were obeying the things that they uh, had been taught. And so spirit-filled integrity should be a part of the life of every Christian. When I say integrity, I just mean essentially being the same everywhere. Now, that's, that's not to say that we don't have um, wisdom given us by God to be missional, right? Because Paul did say in certain situations he, would, he, he became all things in order to reach as many as possible. And so that doesn't mean we can't relate to different types of people. I'm talking about core moral character issues. Do you change how you act, how you speak, who you are, depending on who you're around um, or what situation you're in? That, there's, there's really no room for that in light of the magnificent glory of, of, of our king, okay? Um, just maybe, just think about it this way. Uh, there's many police departments throughout the U.S. now that have uh, outfitted their officers with body cams, right? And so that's, essentially, that's always rolling. And what that does is it takes video of every situation, every encounter that they have. And what that is, is it's a pretty uh, high level of accountability. It lets people know if the, the person that um, they were coming in contact with was mouthing off or being violent or whatever else, or it also... Uh, provides accountability for the police officer. And so I would just say, you know, um, just pretend you always are wearing one and like it live streams to a big screen in the throne room of God. Just think about it that way, right? So before that word comes out your mouth, before you act that way, just just pretend. I'm an adult. I don't want to pretend. Well, maybe you need to. Pretend you got a body cam on, man. What, what, I mean, if, if Jesus was standing right there, if everybody in your community group was standing right there, right? That's what Paul's talking about. It doesn't matter, apparently, these folks were so enamored with, with the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel, uh, and, and, and we find, on, find out later on that they have this, they really care about even like honoring the one that taught them. That's, that means so much to them that they're, they're like more careful to obey when Paul's not around than when he is. And so uh, just, you know, we can, we can make some little cardboard ones just to, just to trick your mind, and you can wear them, make little necklaces. Uh, Let's see if we can get the creative team on that. That'd be great. <clears throat> Fake body cams for everyone. Um, so moving forward, then, so first of all, he talks about that, right? The, kind of the, the spiritual integrity. He talks about uh, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Then he goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, this is where it gets super important to keep the context intact. This is, it's vitally important. Because many have pulled this verse out of context and used it to teach that you should walk around terrified that if you mess up and don't repent right away that you're going to lose your salvation. Many people have said it that way. Maybe not even as direct as I just did, but through inference or just not properly unpacking what's being said here. If you just read that verse, right? If you didn't read 6 through 11, if you didn't understand the flow of thought, and if you don't move on to read also verse 13, you could lift that verse out of context and say, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does that mean, right? Like that, that's why context matters, okay? So um, the, the truth is, if, if this means that you should walk around terrified that if you mess up because you're going to lose your salvation, if you don't repent right on the spot or whatever, if that is what this verse means, then first of all, just practically, we are all doomed. Because the reality is we fall short of perfection daily, and often it is not until later that we are perceptive to the Spirit of God convicting us about that, right? Have you, have, you ever, have you ever done something, said something, or even maybe over a long period of time conducted yourself in a certain way and then figured out later by the help of the Spirit of God that that was sinful, right? And so the question is, if you, if you do something that is contrary to God's law, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and uh, the trumpet blows right at that moment Jesus returns or you get hit by a bus... Um, is, is the grace of God null and void for you? Is that what walking out your salvation with fear and trembling means? That's what some people teach. That's a pretty weak grace. That's a pretty troubling salvation if that's what it is. Okay? Let's unpack this. Let's work on it. Because I know there's a variance of backgrounds here. There's a variance of teachings people have received. And so let's, let's just see what the text says. What does the scripture seem to be saying about this? Okay? Um, How do, so how do we know this isn't Paul teaching that salvation is based on works or what we do and don't do? Because a, a surface level reading of it, you could think, well, Paul changed his mind. Scrap Romans, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This means it's, it's on me. I better walk it out or else it ain't going to work. Okay? 
Why is that not what happened? First of all, the Greek word translated fear in this context can equally mean reverence or respect. Here's part of how we know that. Paul uses the same phrase in 2 Corinthians 7.15 where he refers to Titus as being encouraged by the Corinthians' reception of him with fear and trembling. He uses the same language in the way the Corinthians received Titus. Okay? Uh, and that was, they had great humility and respect for Titus's position as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Paul himself came to the Corinthian church, he says, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Same language again. That's in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. You can look that up later. So what, what, why did Paul come to the Corinthian church in weakness and fear and with much trembling? Well, it's because he was mindful and understood of the great and awesome nature of the work for the Lord in which he was engaged. There was a reverence and respect and a, 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 a proper weight that sat upon him that caused a right kind of fear and trembling to know that he was going to represent Christ, probably because it was also Corinth, which was a really rowdy town full of, uh, you know, essentially sex worshipers. So he knew he had his work cut out for him uh, in taking the gospel there. Okay, so that's number one. Second, here's another reason we know that this, that we're, this is not Paul teaching that salvation is based on what we do or don't do, okay? This letter is known as one of the prison letters of Paul. It was written during the same imprisonment for the faith as letters like Ephesians, Colossians, and a couple others. So I want to read you this from Ephesians, which was written very closely in time to Philippians, perhaps within days of each other. Uh, to, to the very same letter we're working through. Okay, so this is Ephesians 2.8. This happened in the same time frame, in the same place Paul wrote this letter as he wrote the letter to the Philippians. Okay, so wh why am I making that point? That way you understand my, my argument. Because some might say, well, Paul wrote earlier letters and presented the gospel one way, but then there's been, there's been scholars and there's been church fathers throughout church history that have They've migrated in their understanding of the scripture the longer they lived. I mean, Augustine had some really strong positions early on and then kind of changed those positions later in life. And so somebody could say, well, when Paul wrote this book, he thought this way. And now in Philippians, he's, you know, he's saying works is part of the deal. These letters were both written, I mean, definitely within probably weeks or months of each other, but maybe days of each other in the very same time frame. So Paul you know, they, they may have even been sent out together, right? So it's not like there was some drastic change in theology. And this is how Paul explained this to the Ephesians in a letter written to them at the very same time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay? So, um, Paul did not get confused between the writing of these two letters. His theology did not change. So, part of how we have to rightly interpret Scripture is we have to look at Philippians 2, verse 12, that he says that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we need to take into account the rest of what the Scriptures have to say, what the Old Testament pointed forward to, right? What Jesus said, right? And what the rest of uh, the, the books and letters of the New Testament say, okay? So Paul clearly did not have some change of heart and decide, you know, well, maybe salvation is dependent on works. I don't know. He, there was no question about this. In Galatians, he told the Galatians, if anybody comes behind me, even an angel, and preaches to you some different gospel than the one we preach to you, a gospel by grace through faith in Christ alone, may they be accursed, Right? He was not confused about this. A works-based salvation was nowhere in the theological construct of Paul's thinking. It was not in his teaching because it's heretical. Okay, And uh, he was led by the Spirit and not a heretic. So that's good. Uh, so then what does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Okay, The keys to understanding what that phrase means are the verses right before and right after. So we've already done some work on the, the verses before. Okay, um, In light of verses 6 through 11, the magnitude of God's redemptive plan, right, which is described in that ancient hymn, that Jesus came, that he uh, restricted his deity to become a man so that he could feel what we feel, experience what we experience. He could go through temptation and hunger and thirst just like we do so that he could relate to us and so that he could step in as the high priest in the sacrifice for our sins, right? And so Jesus came, uh, all of that. So in the magnitude of God's redemptive plan, the gospel, 
and in the majesty of our Redeemer, so God's plan, but also the focus of the plan, which is Jesus, we should not take lightly our service to him. In light of God's redemptive plan and in light of the beauty of our Redeemer, it is not a light thing uh, that, that we get to serve him, that we have the privilege of, of bearing his name, uh, of knowing him and walking with him. So said another way, we should have a healthy reverence for our heavenly father and a healthy fear of failing him. I want to make sure you're clear that I understand this. I am not like God, and the gap between his perfect fathering and my attempts to emulate him are too large to be measured. Okay, I'm very aware of that. However, I can to some degree understand this idea from my experience with my kids. I have seen both Lucy, who is six, and Max, who is three. I would say Lucy much more often in this instance, but but both of them, to be sure, I've seen them both upset. Uh, even I've, I've seen Lucy weep over it, not because they feared punishment from me, but because they simply knew they disappointed me. Why? Well, my great hope is it's because my kids love me and they trust me, and I've done something to convince them that I love them and I care for them. And so... To be sure, they, they have cried before because they knew they were going to be punished, but there's also something to that in the fact that I'm discipling them and I'm charged with raising them. But the other really vibrant reality is I've, I've seen Lucy shed tears when there was no risk of punishment. All she, she just knew that she disappointed me. Um, and that's because we love each other. And so I think we do need to have a healthy reverence for our God, our perfect Father, and I think we can have a healthy fear of failing that fear never leads to condemnation. We don't live in condemnation because we are saved by grace. There's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. We do experience conviction, a beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit that acts like a spiritual red light or a spiritual nervous system that helps us to know, man, when we stray out of the benevolent boundaries set by God and his loving law, when we do that, that we, we walk out into danger and pain and destruction every single time we disobey the Lord. And so we do experience conviction as Christians. Um, but but part of what's going on here is we should, I think a lot of times people just think in terms of like, what do I need to do to not go to hell? Right? For a lot of people, that's as far as this goes. Like, I've, I've heard there's this great place that you can go when you die, and there's a really bad place you can go, and I don't want to go to the bad place, I want to go to the good place. And, and that's kind of, so then, so then they find out, okay, so what are the rules that allows me to go to the good place when I die instead of the bad place when I die, right? And that, that is like so far from what it looks like to serve and know Jesus, like, this, this, is about, this is about a relationship. There's beauty for here and now. Like, he lets us approach him as, as a father that loves us perfectly. And I know that's a struggle for some of you, and it was for me for years to even think of God as father because of, of human fathers not doing a great job, like, giving us a good example. And so I, I know that can be a problem. I'm just asking you to, to, to ask God to help you understand what it means when he calls himself our father, and he invites us to call him father. And to really, really check, like, do you desire a relationship with him? Do you care whether or not you let him down? Or do you care just that you, don't, you want to avoid his punishment? Or you, you just don't want to end up in hell? Like, if I can just squeak by, I want to do everything I want to do as much as I can get away with, but then still, you know, get that, get that golden ticket that gets me in the gate when I die. That, that's so far from the way we're being encouraged to think about it here. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling has this idea that we have an incredible reverence and a love and a respect and a relationship with the God who authored all of life and the plan of redemption that saves us from ourselves and sin and death. We, we, we love him and he loves us. And because of that, we, we have fear and we tremble at the thought of, of disrespecting him or, or disobeying him. I, do, I love him. I don't want to let him down. I don't want to disappoint God. Not, not because I, I think he's going to lightning bolt me if I do, right? That's, that's Zeus. That's a Greek God. Like, forgive, that's, that's different, okay? Our God doesn't have a bucket of lightning bolts. Um, but he has set forth benevolent boundaries. He does know what's best for us. And for, for many of us, we, we still struggle to actually believe if God asks us to do something, that that ultimately is for our good, even if there's temporary pain in it. 
Some of us really struggle to believe that if God asks us not to do something, that that is for our good, that he is keeping us from something that will hurt us, even if that thing looks appealing. Until you believe that, none of this is going to make sense to you. Walking out your salvation with fear and trembling won't matter to you, and it won't make sense. This is the difference between legalism and Christianity. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. God has called us to a loving relationship with him. He made a way for that to happen through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. The question is, do you desire that? Do you desire closeness and intimacy and authentic relationship with the God that made you? Because he desires it with you. Yeah, buddy, but you don't know me. You sure God wants to be close to me? Absolutely. Well, how, how can you be sure? <clears throat> because he told me. It's all through here, man. From Genesis to Revelation, he has proven that what he wants and what he desires is to be near you. He will not force you to come near him, but he has invited you to come near him. Please do. Because a lot of the brokenness and pain in your life and a lot of the energy and time you spend chasing fulfillment, peace, and joy somewhere else, you could stop all that. You could save yourself a lot of pain. And I'm not promising you uh, that life will even be better from your perspective if you surrender your heart to Christ. I'm sorry. It will be better. I can't promise you it'll be easier from your perspective. And it probably may not be better from your perspective, but it will actually be better. I'll go ahead and stick to the first one. Sticking to my guns. You know what? I'm fine with that. It may not be better from your perspective. It definitely may not be easier from your perspective. But we sometimes need to humble ourselves and realize our perspective is jacked and lacking. I just got to amen for the word jacked. I'm I'm on that. I'm with you guys. (laughs) This, This is going good. All right. Sweet. You guys knew what I meant. Okay. Jacked is not a theological term, but... I'm glad, we, I'm glad we all understood what I meant. We don't always know what's best. And that's hard to hear, especially in a culture that screams at you all the time. You know what's best. You are the best. You deserve the best. Yay, you. <laughs> right? Like, you come in here and I'm like, you, you don't know much of anything that's good for you. <laughs> but God does, so trust him. Okay? Yay. All right. Um, Paul is not, get this, this is very important. Paul is not saying we need to work for our salvation. He is saying we need to work out our salvation. Real important distinction. In light of the glorious weight of the gospel and the unmatched splendor of our God, in light of the fact that we were hopelessly enslaved to sin and deserved God's wrath, but instead our Savior took it upon himself, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, we should fear and tremble at the thought of disappointing the only one so powerful and loving and good and benevolent as that. That is what is being said in verse 12. Now, verse 13 seals the deal. I told you 6 through 11 and understanding the flow of thought mattered. So what's before that helps us interpret what working out salvation with fear and trembling means? Verse 13 seals the deal. Let's look at that together, okay? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Praise God. So we work out our salvation because God is working in us. We work out our salvation because God is working in us. Uh, I think it's also beautiful that he just says both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's, he is at work in you, and here's what he's after, that you would will and work for his good pleasure. We talk about it all the time, guys, but it's, it's in here so frequently, we, just, we have to say it. God isn't just trying to modify your behavior. He's not just trying to get you to stop doing bad things or start doing good things. He is about your heart. He is working in you so that you will and work for his good pleasure. He wants your heart, man. He wants the greatest delight of your life to be serving and knowing and loving him. He wants you to have joy. That's what this is about. So many people think, okay, if I'm going to serve Jesus, party's over, right? I'm just going to read the Bible all the time, right? Life's going to be so boring. No, man. That's, you've bought a lie if you think that. 
If you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to be swept into the most exciting, beautiful rescue mission that has ever been set forth in, ev- in all of history. You're going to be swept into the most important work, purposeful work. Everyone wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves, man. Come on and jump in on it and be a part of God's redemptive plan over all of history so that people can know him and be with him forever and don't have to be separated from him forever. You want to do something fun? You want to be a part of something exciting? Jump in on that. This is not some humdrum, boring existence, man. It's exciting to be a part of what God's doing in the earth. What's boring is to keep working for temporal pleasures, going harder and harder after money, sex, and power, finding that I'm empty at the end of every single time I finally, I'm like Solomon running around chasing after wind. I catch it, open my hands, and my heart shattered again because that thing I was pursuing with all of my energy, once again, doesn't fulfill me. That's boring. That seems wretched. That gets old, and that's the point of Ecclesiastes. The richest dude ever is like, hey, I've done it all. All the stuff you think is going to lead to something great for you that you think God's trying to keep from you, go on ahead. Spend a bunch of your life and energy chasing after that stuff. Here's what you're going to find out at the end. Even when you get it, when you clasp your hands around it, that final sexual conquest, that final amount of money, if I had this amount of money, I'd finally be comfortable. I'd finally be able to retire, whatever the big goal is, if I finally get to this position of authority, then I'll be there. I'll have arrived. And you clasp your hands around that thing and you're like, yes! Oh, my heart's still empty. Bummer. Well, let's start again. Let's find another magazine or TV show or something. Let's watch Cribs again. There's probably a bigger house out there I could find with more gold plating and stuff. And then if I get that one, this one didn't fix my heart, but the next one will. Man, do you know Nicolas Cage owned like seven castles? Dude's broke now. He owned like seven castles, had a whole fleet of yachts. What do you you think that's about? Why would any human do a lot of things Nick Cage did? But but secondly, why why would they? they, (laughs) Like that movie where he was a sorcerer? I don't know what went on there. Dude is a good actor, but I guess when you... You you, got to have enough money to keep your seven castles going. I guess you do that kind of stuff. But anyways... I'm not trying to be hard on Nick Cage. He's just the example that came to my mind. But that brother just kept buying stuff until he was flat broke. Why? What drives a person to do that? Like after Castle 3, why? How do we not get it? <laughs> that Castle 4 is not going to be the thing. Whoa, there's a stage there. That Castle 4 is not going to be the thing, man, that finally stops this aching in my heart. When am I going to... When do you get to the point where you're like, you know what, maybe, there, maybe buying more and bigger things or gaining more prestige uh, or, or whatever the temporal pleasure is, maybe that something should go off at some point. I don't know. Okay. So the beauty of this is that he not only wants you to work for his good pleasure, he wants you to will it. God's after your heart. Ah. Uh, God will give you the desires of your heart if you delight yourself in him. See, we like to quote that psalm, but we forget really what it says. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires change. And I'm not saying that um, material possession is bad at all. Absolutely, God, God blesses some people with the ability to gain material possessions so that they can further his kingdom. It, it does take money and currency and various things to get the work of the gospel done. Absolutely. And God, some people are specifically gifted for doing that. But God wants their heart too, right? The, the things can't own them. Um, they have to own the things, not be owned by the things. And so God doesn't just want you to do the right stuff. He wants you to want to do the right stuff. And he wants you to want, it's even deeper than that, he wants you to want to do it not because you're trying to avoid hell. He wants you to want to do it because you love him and because you know how much he loves you. But it's very clear that, uh, right, so here's the key. Verse 12, it says, so then. So that, that so then, or some of your translations say therefore, it's connecting it to verses 6 through 11. Okay, so we work out our salvation with fear and trembling 
because of what was just said, what Jesus has done through the gospel. So that's connected to that. So that, that's one reason we know it's not preaching salvation by works. And then it goes on, and then so Paul's building a case here. You're like, man, you're, you're like a lawyer. Why are you hitting this thing so hard? Because Paul writes it like a lawyer because he has to because the bent of our heart always is to go back to a naturalistic, legalistic understanding of this thing and a works-based salvation. Because everything you do in your life is based on your performance, is it not? The gospel is the one place where you do the crime, someone else does the time. And because you believe in his goodness, you are counted as righteous. It is completely antithetical to the way all of the rest of nature and reality works. So that's why Luther said you have to have the gospel constantly beat into your head. I don't know if I like that. Listen, man, I love you and I want you to get this because this is the whole message of the Bible right here. It's all about the gospel. That is the message we have to preach. The great, beautiful jewel of Christianity at large is the truth of the gospel. If we don't have that, we should be pitied and we should shut down shop because we're not doing nothing. So the, verse 12 is connected to what's before it. And then, and then he says, look at the first word of verse 13. For, right? So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For or because... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, because of 6 through 11, and because it is God at work in you, that is why we walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that all of that together just crushes this idea that Paul's teaching, that you need, you need to, you need to uh, mind your P's and Q's and make sure, you know, if you sin, you repent within 12 seconds because you never know when a random meteorite might break through the atmosphere and crush your skull. And, and then if you, go, if you get hit by that thing and, and, and you have unrepentant sin, then, then you're going straight to hell. That's a very weak gospel, man. That's a very weak grace. Now, should we repent for every single sin that we can ever possibly think of? Yes, absolutely. Repentance is a vibrant part of the Christian life. You will be given an opportunity today to approach God through communion, to repent for your sin, to participate in the privilege of bringing, confessing your sin to God and trusting him to forgive you. And you should do that often. But if you are unaware, I mean, here's, here's the question. Here's why this is theologically problematic. How, how many times are people unaware of their sin? And here's my thing. Like, who is so perceptive and knows their own heart to such a degree that they are totally aware of every place they're falling short of God's perfect glory? What is the process of sanctification, if that's even true, right? God is in a process of conforming us to the image of his son. There's more jacked up about you than you're even aware of. And if God opened up the doors to us all at once and showed us every single place we fall short of his glory, we would all jump off something. Because we would drown in hopelessness. But he is patient and perseverant with us, and he walks slowly with us, and bit by bit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Shrek said it best, Christians are like onions. They've got layers, right? And so God is peeling those layers back a little bit at a time. Christians are like ogres, and ogres are like onions, okay? Do you understand why that matters? Because you don't know about everything in the core of that onion, man. you got broken stuff in you that God's not dealt with yet. He can't even get there yet because you're not ready for it. Because if he told you about that broken part of you, you'd give up. But as he grows you and he's patient with you and he perseveres with you by his grace, little by little, he's showing you more and more what it's going to mean for you to walk and talk and think and love like him. And I'm real thankful. So... You walking out your salvation with fear and trembling is not you constantly being in fear of losing your salvation. Salvation is not a sock that has a mismatch that your dryer eats, right? You don't lose your salvation. This is not something that's, oh, boom, there it went. This is a deep and beautiful work of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this at, at, the, at the risk of causing a fight. Some of you because there are scriptures that, that seem to indicate apostasy is possible, that through long, uh, long, purposeful, intentional rebellion against God, that you can choose to remove yourself outside of God's grace. Some of you believe yourself, you, you, you can apostatize or you can 
reject God long enough that you can remove yourself from his grace. I still don't, I don't even like the terminology, lose your salvation, because it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> there it went. It's, it's not, if, if it's even possible, it takes a long time. <laughs> and it's not something that, oh, I forgot to repent for this sin. Now God's going to cast me into hell. That's not how it works. And one other, one other thing, some of you, like, some of you really struggle to get traction in your faith and your walk with Christ because you are constantly fighting this battle about whether or not you actually belong to God. Like, am I saved? Because you've got an accuser in Satan that's constantly whispering in your ear about, well, look at this about you, look at this about you, look at this thing you did. Eh, you're probably not really a Christian. You're, you're constantly in this mental anguish. Can I just say something to you? It's very, very unlikely that somebody that is not a child of God cares about whether or not they're a child of God. Do you understand what I'm talking about? If you care about it, you probably belong to him. So I hope that's helpful for some of you. Tell Satan to shut up. Repent for your sin, trust in God's faithfulness to forgive you, and move forward. Now, some of you believe, because of other verses, that it is not possible to apostatize, that no matter what you do, you will never escape the grace of God. I will say this. I have seen both verses. This is going to blow your mind to hear a pastor say this. And some of you may not like it, and that's okay. I've seen the verses both ways. I've read them both ways. I've prayed for years about it. And here's, here's where I'm at. I'm not sure. What? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where I'm at on it. Here's, here's my problem. I refuse... To, to feel the safety of, of a herd mentality and feel like I can plant my flag in one theological camp, I refuse to ignore scriptures. I won't do it. I don't care. I'm happy to be in the middle. I'm happy for you to look at me and say, how can you be a pastor and not know the answer to that question? Listen, man, if more pastors said they don't know more often, uh, we'd have a lot less confusion and probably a lot more humility um, and a lot less fighting over stuff that I'm not sure people can even actually know the answer to, but I digress. I'm not totally sure. I, I, do, I have an opinion about it. If you put a gun to my head and said, I want an answer, I, I, I would probably I'd sway one way or the other on it. But here's what I'm going to tell you about that question. It's a second-tier issue, and it changes almost nothing. Because whether you believe after long disobedience and intentional rejection of God's grace and mercy, you can apostatize from the faith, or whether you believe once you become a Christian, you can never, ever do that, no matter which way you believe about that, what does that change about walking out your salvation with fear and trembling? Really? What does it change about how we serve God? What does it change about our mission of preaching the gospel to all the ends of the world? You can sit here and try to delineate and, and, and divide over and fight about these second-tier issues, or you can get to busy about the first-tier issue of God's business of letting as many people as possible know there is hope in Christ. What's up? Some of you won't like this. Some of you have a tendency towards being a theological neatnik. You feel like all of theology, which is the study of God, can fit into a box with a nice red bow on it and ties up tight. Let me just help you with something. God is real big. Like, he existed before time, okay? So just try right now, with, with the three-pound piece of meat between your ears, the fallen piece of meat between your ears, no, no less, try to imagine God existing before time and what that even means. Are, are we done arguing? Right, because when your brain starts to melt and fall out your ears, when you can't even really even what, understand what timelessness means, you start to realize that some, some of the things of God... You don't have to have as firm of an answer about it as you think you do. Now, if you're sure about that one way or the other, praise God. But we're not going to argue about it in this church. You are free to understand that one of either way. Because there are, there are scriptures that really seem to be saying it one way. And there are scriptures, I, I, I agree, really seem to be saying it another way. On that issue. And you know what? <clears throat> I think it has almost... See, here's why some people would argue with me and say it matters so much. This is not in my notes, Lord Jesus. Here's why some people say it matters so much. Because, if, because, because people will misunderstand this verse. Well, if you can lose your salvation, then people are going to be freaked out all the time that they've lost their salvation. To believe that somebody possibly could apostatize after willful rejection of God's conviction over a long period of time, that finally he, will, he could turn them over to their depravity and their desire for that. If somebody believes that, it doesn't mean they believe if you stub your toe and cuss and the second coming happens, you're going to hell. You understand? So that's the problem with this. A lot of times people characterize, caricaturize, it's a big word with a lot of syllables, the, uh, the people that think the other way about it. Okay, so we can't do that, man. 
you, you can be a balanced, faithful Christian and think either way about that. You cannot be a balanced, faithful Christian and think working out your salvation with fear and trembling means if I make a mistake and forget to repent for it immediately, that I'm going to hell if something happens. That's not. That's, that's way out of balance, and that's going to lead to a whole bunch of problems. Everyone cool with that? I know you're not all cool with it. That's okay. I knew that when I started. Let's go. All right. Trying to work for your salvation is like trying to kayak on asphalt, okay? You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to get tired and give up. So, I mean, just imagine yourself on a flat street, and you're, you're trying to do the thing, man. I'm going to get the place. No, you're going to break your paddle. You're going to ruin your little kayak, and you're going to be exhausted and wore out, and then you're going to quit. If you don't have the beautiful spirit of, of God, the living water that comes from him, lifting you up and carrying you along, this thing's not going to happen. Don't try to work for your salvation. You can't do it. Salvation is a gift. The Bible's very clear about that. It is a gift by faith. Praise God. Verse 14 through 18 begin to give us some practical examples of what it looks like to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? So let's look at that. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Okay? Uh, so there is debate among people about whether this command uh, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, whether that's like vertical complaining and arguing or horizontal complaining and arguing. So what I mean by that is like, is, are, 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 are they, is he talking about complaining at or arguing with God or complaining at and arguing with people? Um, the reality is both likely apply, uh, but the wording here is exact the same as the wording used to describe the Israelites complaining in the wilderness, right? So there's definitely a connection there. This is probably in the mind of Paul as he's writing this. He's remembering that story of God taking the Israelites out of Egypt. It's, it's so frustrating because it's us. Like, you know I mean? God takes the Israelites out of Egypt. He does incredible miracles. He provides manna for them. Uh, Moses strikes a rock and a river of water floods out of it, right? He, he takes care of them. He gives them a, a, a cloud to follow by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. Like he, it's, it's, it's just like miracle upon miracle. It's, it's incredible. The way they got out was a sea splitting in half and then swallowing all of their enemies. And it doesn't take that long. And the people of God start saying things like, I'm tired of camping. I want to go back to Egypt. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, so frustrating. You guys remember the onions in Egypt? This man is so boring. I just wish I had an onion. I wish I had leeks and garlic again. Like, you fool. And, and like, it'd be so easy to just, just really rail on the Israelites if, like, we weren't so prone to the same thing. God has been so good to us. He has rescued us from darkness and death and sin. He has brought us into his glorious kingdom of light. He's given us reason for joy and hope both in this life and for eternity. And yet, how often are we looking to heaven, shaking our fist? Half, half the time, some of us are remembering what it used to be like before I served God and the fun things I used to do. What? You fool? Stop and repent because that is destructive, deceptive thinking. And it's grumbling and complaining. And the command here is to do all things without that. If you're starting to reminisce about how great it was before you came and had this, the, the, the chains of sin removed from your wrist, if, if, if that's the way you're thinking, get with somebody, talk to somebody, get on your face before God. Don't let that line of thinking continue because it's going to lead to your destruction. Don't be an Israelite, free in the wilderness with God as your camp leader, in a pillar of fire and smoke, complaining about, I wish I had some seasoning for this manna, this miracle food dropping from the air every day. Right? Like, oh, dunce cap. Okay. So that's the vertical idea. We should not, however, complain or argue against God, one another, or really anybody. Okay? So uh, the emphasis of the verse here is this idea of do all things without grumbling uh, or disputing. Other translations say complaining, without arguing or complaining. Do all things without arguing or complaining. 
Do all things without arguing or complaining. I just want to make sure you heard it. <laughs> How we doing? <laughs> Do we need God's spirit and help every minute of every day? Yup. In light of God's greatness, in light of the fact that he's working in us, in the light of the fact that he's been patient with us thus far, however, we're setting a bar here. You're not going to reach it, but we still got to strive for it to do all things in every situation, man. Don't argue and complain. Don't grumble and complain. Don't grumble at God. Don't grumble at people. Love God and love people. You're going to need the Spirit's help to do that because we're a bunch of complainers, if we're honest. I'm not. <clears throat> Self-aware much? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 15. Uh, here's what it says. Where is it? There it is. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation without, uh, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Okay, so, um, the, he, so, so, he, so he says here, be he blameless and harmless. Um, this is from Spurgeon. He said the Greek here could be translated hornless, like an animal without horns. Uh, he says, as if you were to be creatures not only that do not do harm, but could not do any, like sheep that not only will not devour, but cannot devour. Uh, for it were contrary to their nature, for they have no teeth with which to bite, no fangs with which to sting, and no poison with which to slay. So be, be, be so like that in your nature that it's, it's not even something you, you, you could do, right? That's, that's the goal we're shooting for. Of course, it doesn't mean... Prove yourself to be blameless and innocent as if you are going to be completely without sin. That, that, I know the translation seems to say that, but there, we got too much other scripture that tells us that's this side of heaven, we're not going to hit perfect. That's, that's not a possibility. Uh, but we, we, we can shoot then, especially, and, and so it says, children of God above approach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So Part of that blameless and innocent is, is in the way that we appear to those around us because he calls us to be lights to the world here. Again, this is not the first time we've heard that language. Jesus said he was the light of the world, but he also said that we are the light of the world. Uh, and part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, uh, God's very Holy Spirit now dwells in us. And so the Spirit of Christ goes with us. That's how we are lights to the world. Uh, not because we're great, not because we are blameless or perfect in and of ourselves, but we carry the beauty of, of the Spirit of Christ, the power of the Spirit of Christ with us. And so we are indeed lights of the world, light to the world, um, to the glory of God. So uh, verse, verse 16, um, you guys know that the, the verse, like the chapters and verses in the Bible was not inspired. Here's what I mean when I say that. We, we believe the scriptures, that the very words are inspired by God. We believe the Bible is written ultimately Human authors were involved, but it is inspired by God, right? We believe that because of scriptures in Timothy and other places. The chapters and verses were added later to kind of like help us navigate. It's like addresses, right? And sometimes I think maybe it could have been done better. This is one of those times. Verse 16 really would work better um, if, if you pushed it back a little bit farther uh, because it chops this up a little bit weird. But anyways, we'll... We'll keep working. It says, uh, verse 16 here says, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor in toil. Um, really, if it, if it started at among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, like those, those really go to get, that whole thought kind of flows together. Uh, and, then, and then he transitions to how that's going to affect him. So, this idea of holding fast the word of life. Some translations will say holding out the word of life. Hold fast or hold out. Okay. Um, the, the reality is in, in the Greek word, it's, it's like both implications are there. So there's a hold fast, but also a hold out. Could, both could be said of this, of this Greek word. So you got to pick an English word, and that's some translations went one way, some went the other. E each one is true, but it's, it's hard. We don't really have a good English word to encompass the totality of what's being said there. So it's really hold, we hold fast, but we also hold out. So it's this idea of holding the word of God, like a starving man holds his last morsel of food, but also holding it out to someone willing to share. Both is in there. So he's calling us to hold fast to the word of God, like it's the last thing we got, 
and the only thing we got, but also hold it out, willing to share it. It's, 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 like, it's kind of like the idea of the, the, the widow in, in the Old Testament filling the jars of oil. She's got one jar of oil, and, and, and a miracle happens. She keeps pouring oil into other jars, and like the jar in her hand keeps filling. There's this idea that if we, if we hold fast to the Word of God, like it's the last thing we've got, we can also share it and not exhaust it. We can keep pouring out into others. We can keep sharing it with others. And in doing that, we're not going to lose it. But we have to hold that thing, and it's got to be precious to us. That's the connotation of what's being taught here. Okay? Uh, that's verse 16. Oh, sorry. He goes on to say, um, So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Again, we see the depth of relationship here between Paul and these people. He knows he can talk to them about how their walk with Christ affects him, and they won't be offended by it or feel like, you know, he's got some ulterior motives. They, they just know he's poured his life and heart into these people, um, and whether or not they follow after Christ is, is going gonna, gonna to be part of how he assesses if, if his life's been worth something. Um, one, one commentator said it this way. It says, this, that idea or that part of verse 16, it shows the true heart of a shepherd, to have few burdens for oneself but many for others. Uh, to not be content with one's own relationship with God, but also longing to see others walking with the Lord. Uh, verse 17 and 18 says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my faith with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Uh, first of all, this is a very considerate teaching from Paul. He's, 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 he's a master of doing this. He chooses this imagery of the drink offering because both Old Testament Israel understood that idea, but also in much pagan worship, they had an equivalent of this drink offering. And so um, if we remember, the, the Philippian church was probably primarily Gentiles that had been converted. It wasn't a lot of Jews uh, there in that location. And so he uses this word picture that will help, like, like both people would get because of their historical context. So it's just, he's just brilliant at that, um, inspired by God, of course. Uh, but just a really good missional thinker. I, I, there's example for us in that. But anyways, I, we don't have time for that. Um, <laughs> one guy got it. All right. Um, so it, it's a considerate teaching from him. Um, so the, the drink offering, that was, so either, either this, this, this is almost like, like an extra, like when you're offering an animal uh, in sacrifice, they would either pour on to that sacrifice or next to that sacrifice, this, this drink offering. It's an, it's an additional part of the, the worship and a, an additional offering to God in the midst of all that was going on. Um, there's, there's one commentator that sees what Paul is doing here and, and says this, since the sacrifice and service were connected with the faith of the Philippians, right? Because he says, if I'm being pulled out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, it is best to see Paul's picture describing them, the Philippians, as priests and their faith as the sacrifice, to which Paul added uh, his martyrdom as a drink offering. So we see here, again, throughout this letter, Paul has his situation in mind. This, the brother's in jail um, and very likely is facing a death sentence. Now, we know, we know that and it isn't actually this imprisonment where he ends up being martyred for the faith. It's a, it's a later one. But the reality and the possibility is very true, as he, or it's very real as he's writing this letter. He could be killed for the faith very soon. And so this is, this is mixed into, as he's giving instruction and encouragement to this church, um, he's thinking about it. He could be poured out as a drink offering on, on the service of their faith. And so... like. The end of his run could be him being killed for Christ, and that's what he's thinking about. Here's what he says about that. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So we see here again this common theme. It's a common theme of this letter, and it emerges here yet again. It's joy and rejoicing regardless of circumstances. Having joy and rejoicing regardless of circumstances. And it goes, it goes even farther than that. It's not just rejoicing or having joy in spite of difficult circumstances. He takes it even farther. And this is hard for some of us, I know. But he, calls, he says he is and calls the Philippians to rejoice because of the difficult things going on. Not just in spite of them, but because of them. Knowing that those difficult things can bring glory to God. 
That requires the work of the Spirit. It is so hard to even think that way. To rejoice in the midst of difficulty, not just because I'm trusting that God will get me out of the difficulty. Most of us can get that, well, some of us struggle to even get that far, right? Like, to rejoice in the middle of a trial because I'm trusting that God will get me out of it. Like, that's, that's one thing. And some people can get to that point. Paul, Paul's like 10 steps ahead of that. And he's like, I'm in the difficult thing. And I'm rejoicing about the difficult thing because the difficult thing might lead to God's glory. And it doesn't really matter how it affects me. Woo, buddy. Come on. You want to talk about a life poured out unto God as a fragrant offering. That's what it looks like. That is beautiful. I realize it is counterintuitive to almost everything else you'll hear about anything. But it is beautiful and it is worthwhile for us to pray that God would help us to think this way. We will not do it. We will not rejoice in the midst of suffering um, because of the potential for it to glorify God if we don't have the Spirit's help. And he's not, Paul's not morbid here. He's not saying to the uh, Philippians, I want you to rejoice as well that I could be murdered here for the faith. He wants them to rejoice in the fact that God could be glorified if he's murdered for the faith. Paul has made it clear earlier in the letter, verse 21 of chapter 1, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if you've been here through thus far in our journey through Philippians, you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to rejoice always. I'm supposed to have joy all the time, even in the midst of suffering. Is this book going to say anything else? Not really. It's going to kind of keep saying that different ways because it's so hard to even grasp. And that's what Paul's doing. He's defending this idea throughout this book with different examples by appealing to the glory of Christ, by appealing to his own situation over and under and all the way around. He is trying to give us this idea that joy is possible even when you're not happy. And there's so much beauty in that. If you can get to the place where nobody can take joy from you no matter what's going on, you've essentially become invincible by the power of God. If you can say with true conviction to live as Christ, for me to die is gain, you, you are unbeatable. And you will walk this thing out faithfully for Christ. That is the big idea. However, here's the beauty of God. We don't have to be in, in an imminent martyrdom situation to experience joy. It's not just that we can... This, this isn't as dark as it sounds, right? He's not saying, well, you're only ever going to have joy in the midst of really hard stuff. There's, there's joy and happiness and beautiful things too, but the point is, Understanding the real nature of joy. We so much equate joy with happiness. We equate joy with, with like an emotional state. Joy is something deeper. It's a gift from God that is rooted and grounded in things that never change. It is something you can have always and in every situation. And it's different than happiness. It, you never have to give it up. Joy flows up out of the fountain of the beauty of God's gospel, the truth that even though every single one of us deserves damnation and the wrath of God, that's not what we get. Jesus took it, and by faith, we can, we can be pardoned and called righteous before God. That gospel is never changing. God's sovereignty is never changing. God's promise to work for our good is never changing, and so we can have joy always. That is God's gift to you. Will you receive it is the question. May we be a people who fear disappointing our Father, but trust his grace and mercy when we do. May we be a people who do everything without complaining or arguing, knowing that this reflects how Jesus served us without complaining. And may we be a people who are full of joy, even when we aren't happy for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, is difficult as that was to work through, we thank you for Philippians 2. We thank you for this, this beautiful letter from a man in jail facing a death sentence for the faith. We thank you, God, for the truth that it speaks to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that comes from hearing him work through these things, talking to his friends, talking to those that he's invested his life into. Um, 
Thank you for the beautiful truth that, Lord, though we do walk out this salvation with fear and trembling, we're not terrified of you. We're not looking around every corner hoping that that you're not going to abandon us because you've made clear you won't do that. You're not going to be quick to drop us. You're not looking for a reason to let us go. You've done everything that you possibly can to hold on to us. You've removed every obstacle out of the way so that we could come to you. You are about reconciled relationship with us. So I thank you, God, that you are not quick to let us go. I thank you, God, that you've done everything necessary, that by grace we can come close to you, be sons and daughters instead of wretches and rebels. Thank you, God, for your loving mercy, your long-standing, long-suffering patience with us. Thank you, God, that you are working a magnificent plan of redemption and that you allow us to be a part of it. Help us, God, to rejoice in the midst of every situation. Help us to rejoice in the midst of good and easy times and help us to rejoice in the midst of really difficult, hard times. And may all of these things, Lord God, lead to your glory and may it preach to the world the reality of what you've done in us. Thank you that you are working in us to change what we will and what we do. We trust you with everything, God. You're worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org